Welcome, everyone, to the Cup of Coffee podcast with me, your host, Tom Dillon. This has been recorded live at our Tim Pot mobile studio and broadcast around the world. Today's topic is Don't Do This with Ed Fox. Um, before we start, I'd just like to say by way of a disclaimer that today's a wonderful discussion, but that nothing said here constitutes financial advice. You should always take professional advice before investing your hard-earned cash. There may be the odd unplanned swear word along the way as well. The form of today is that me and Ed will just have a chat, um, and then there'll be questions from the floor, but mostly from me because it's just me here. Uh, in terms of um, young Ed here, Ed, folks from uh, Table Network, um, has 30 years' experience running businesses in UK property from a domestic buy to let to a developer of institutional residential assets. It is creative, strategic, and focused on growth, which sounds exhausting. Uh, working as an advisor, Ed helps businesses to plan, systemize. Is it systemize or systematize, or can you choose? I'm going to go with systemize. It's what's written here. And scale. Um, uh, so that's what we got. Uh, hello, Ed. Hello. How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Um, thanks very much for agreeing to speak to us today. Real privilege. Well, I'm uh, privileged for me too. <laughs> um, that sounded unconvincing. I've, I've been, well, I've been <laughs> looking forward to it. And equally, I've been with, with a, an, element, uh, an element of trepidation, let's say, because uh, I'm not very, I, I don't really jump in front of cameras all that much. Right. Is there a reason for that? Have you got, have you got like a, a what's it called issues around your appearance or something? You're looking better than me. Let's put, let's start with that. Uh, no, it's not so much that. I think um, actually my my mum and my grand always used to tell me that I was going to be the model of the family. Mm. But um, it actually comes back to the conversation we were having earlier, really, which is I grew up with my uncle telling me who sort of got famous by mistake and decided he really hated it. Um, and him, uh, you know, as my one of my role models in life, and he was like, you never want to be famous. And then, uh, as I said, the the first one, because, you know, obviously, uh, actually, I'm not sure that we knew each other back then uh, when I was running Canary Wall Pin for Simon Zucci. And um, after about four years, I got the first person who approached me in public and said, you're Ed folks, aren't you? And I sort of went, my God, I've got to stop now because I never <laughs> want this to happen again. So uh, I think, you know, I really like walking into a room and having friends of mine know who, know who I am. Mm. But I think that's where I'd like it to stop. Yeah, it's funny. It's with the with, with with the cup of thing with hosting this. It's got to that kind of nice level where in property meetings, I sometimes get people think like looking over me as if mm, I know who that guy is, and I'm putting it together and then going. And that helps me because it means I don't have to do so much of an intro. It saves like a couple of minutes yeah. on my side of things. But I don't want to be walking into a room where you know of like of anything else, uh, and then being known. I, I quite agree with you on that one. Um, yeah. So uh, well, uh, starting nowhere in particular, but uh, but getting into it. How did you? How did you get started in, in business in property in the first place? Why on earth are you here? Oh, so um, I think business and property for two entirely different reasons. Property, when I was on my way to university, um, I just spent a year at art college, kind of flipped into a furniture design course. And uh, my grandmother came to me, and I can't remember you know, where, why it was, but she came to me and she said, I'm going to die one day. Um, you may as well have some of my money before I go. Wow. Uh, so here's £10,000. And I kind of looked at her and looked at the bar and sort of went, that's not going to last long. I'd better do sensible, sensible with it. So I kind of, uh, you know, talked to a couple of people, including my parents. Uh, my dad was a convincing solicitor. My mum was running a lettings business at the time. And mm -hmm. I just sort of went, well, I should buy a flat then. You know, so I bought my first buy to let on my way to uni, which is really quite young for most people. Mm -hmm. And it was literally because the world had fallen off a cliff. It was 1993, so everything was dirt cheap. 
Mm. Um, you know, and the property that I bought is worth well over 10 times that I paid for it. Unfortunately, I sold it after my stint at university. So I sold it for twice what I bought it for. And I turned my eight and a half thousand pound deposit into uh, £45,000, which was a pretty good return over a kind of four year period. Plus, I got to live for free because I got my rent paid, my mortgage paid by my uh, uh, tenant. Um, and that kind of what started me off in property in terms of running my own business. I've never been employable. I'm far too argumentative. I think I know everything about life and I tell people a lot. Um, and I've, I've become a lot more humble over the years. But having been running my own business for so long, uh, every time I've gone to an interview, I've always been able to tell that they've been looking at my CV and gone, why on earth would I take a risk hiring this guy? Because, you know, we can get someone you can tell what to do and they'll do it. But here, all you do is disrupt stuff the whole time. This guy looks uh, like trouble. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and, and I used to, of course, have dreadlocks and, and wear pink trousers and the pink bomb jacket and that sort of thing. And I really did look like trouble warmed up, you know. Um, so anyway, yeah, so that's the uh, the answer to how I got into it. Um, and then I went to, you know, as uh, I think, you know, I've kind of done everything from literally buy back, let landlord, every single thing in the resi sphere until eventually... I was developing for institutions, so you know the likes of Aviva and that sort of thing. Because um, I don't know, I just I like making my life difficult, maybe, um, and sometimes in the end, other people's as well, as you feel well known about. Sure. Um, and then, uh, why did you get rid of the dreadlocks? Is that just as simple as an age thing? Like, is it, unlike me, you've still got the ability by the looks of it to get some dreads on. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I thought about growing them back again. Um, I think it was just a unkempt and sl somewhat slightly dazed, to use a Bowie line. Um, I, I was just one of those, you know, I spent a lot of time smoking too much weed. I mm. really didn't like soap. Um, I thought I really liked soap <laughs> that much, but, um, but I do shower once a day. And back then, so I remember actually the, the first time I went to uh, a hairdresser having had dreadlocks, they just looked at me and went, you've got to be joking. And I was like, packing <laughs> yeah. out of the shop. Um, yeah. So as a result, I've never been to a hairdresser since, and both neither of my boys have ever been to a hairdresser or barber either. You know, mm. we cut all our hair in house. It's only my wife I'm not allowed to touch um, because she cares about what she looks like, but the rest of us just don't. So not, not enough too, anyway. Not too fussed, yeah. Um, so what I get back to, I think I think the wax in the hair was the thing that made me eventually go. It's probably the girlfriend I had before my wife who said it's a bit stinky. <laughs> yeah, can we get rid of it, please? Yeah, why are you using candle wax? There's some special products for this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, uh, fair enough. Property stuff. So, were, were you brought up in London? Is that where was, you started? Yes. So, so, yes. and did you, was your buy to let in London, or was that was that somewhere else cheaper? No, so that's always been in London. Um, okay, London. So, uh, yeah, no. So, I'm born and bred in Hackney. Yeah. Um, so I'm proper Eastenders. Uh, my brother is actually a, an official Cockney, although I'm not. Um, and um, I think, you know, on the one side, it was kind of more luck than judgment. I was probably mm. just lazy, didn't want to travel and blah, blah, blah. And then um, uh, because I'd made money on the first property and da, 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 and I just kind of did it bit by bit. So I was basically doing flips. But with the um, at some point in time, and it was after about I guess five years of doing it after I left university. Uh, so my mother decided that um, uh, when she came and joined me in business, she said um, we have to be able to let it out if we can't sell it, you know, because she'd been alive longer than I had and she wasn't quite as gung ho as me. And so she basically, and also her father was a bank manager, and so she knew a few things about money. 
and she sort of went, okay, that's the rule. So I had to kind of rethink the way that I was sort of looking at things. Um, you know, and I was walking around going, there's a plot of land available in Shoreditch, which is building enough to build a house that's on the high street and we can get it for 110,000 pounds. And she'd be like, you know, looking back on it, I go, a plot of land alone would be worth 1.1 million at this stage, you know, and with a building on it, we're talking four and a half million. And I'm really gutted we didn't do it, but she would just look at it and go, it's too risky, you know. And so she really made sure that we were very, very, very careful. She was the sage and wise person um, and really what I needed, because um, when the world fell off a cliff in 2007, you know, we didn't have to sell anything. We, you know, and and I mean, we had we obviously had the problems and we had to really batten down the hatches. We just bought a house for cash that had been squatted in for the last four years of its life, which is in a very bad state, had lots of massive holes in walls rather than doors in walls and that sort of thing. You know, so there was a lot of work to do. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, it, it sort of it allowed us to always be able to um, have a, well, if this doesn't work, then we can always go and do this instead. Or if this doesn't work, then there's an alternative route. Um, and that kind of, it taught me a lot about risk just for her coming into the business really taught me a lot about risk and how to um, see things in a different manner. Um, so it was good. It was good. Um, so but yes, you... I started off doing flips yeah. rather than um, just building a portfolio. Sure. And did you start that? I imagine the, from what you've implied there that the flips at some point turned into maybe holding on to one or two or ten. Is that how it went? Or and was that straight out of uni, or was there a bit where you went and got a job, or how did how did that go? No, I, I've I've had a job for three months of my entire life. Um, not not including Saturday jobs or cutting trees down in people's gardens for a weekend or something. You know that was uh, I remember that because that was the first fifty pounds a day I ever made, which was you know for me a really big wage. Big um, and then the Three months that I spent employed, I'm not sure I was ever paid for, actually, but um, I was definitely too disruptive and uh, they weren't willing to turn it into a long term career sort of thing. Um, and um, plus, I nearly sold my soul uh, while I was doing that. So I've never worn a watch. Uh, and I found in my three months that I actually I used to walk home and look in the windows of watch shops, looking at Tag Heuer's and dreaming about owning a Tag Heuer. And I realized that there was something going wrong with my psyche. If that was what I was becoming interested in, having never worn a watch. So, uh, um, yeah, um, I, I, I think the uh, ending up going from flipping into buy to let was purely because of my mum's rule. Um, and so in different stages, it's been much better to do buy to lets. And in different stages, it's been better to do developments. And that's generally what I've um, uh, kind of uh, focused on. Um, and I think really the meeting Simon Zucci was what slightly changed my attitude to that. Um, so I was, uh, we went to live in Mexico for a little while and I ran things back home while I was living in Mexico. I kind of put everything in a kind of systemized manner, mm. managed to run it at about one hour a day, which kind of worked quite well. Um, and to go to Mexico, I'd given up the building time that I was running because that was the thing that really took a lot of time. Um, so I had a kind of portfolio that I was running back home. And um, I sort of, you know, while I kind of, I guess, um, thought about what I was going to do when I got back home, because I realized that, you know, I, I'm I'm a slightly, I guess you'd call it nervous, you know, nervous person, but I can't really sit still for very long. I get bored very, very quickly. Um, and I will therefore, you know, I'll never retire because I'm just not going to sit in a chair and watch TV. It's just never going to happen. You know, I will literally... Um, commit Harry Kiri if I if I have to do that. 
So um, I, while we were in Mexico, I was just kind of thinking, well, what should I do? And I read lots of business and property books, property related books. And Simon's was actually the most interesting and informative book that I read at the time. Um, and I wanted to, it was in 2009 when we left and 2011 when we came back. And I really wanted to know how the world had changed because obviously the banks had fallen off a cliff. The world had fallen off a cliff. We had a property that we spent three months trying to get um, lending on because we bought it for cash. And slowly NatWest got further and further away from us and didn't answer us. And we sort of went, okay, we better find out what on earth we can do instead. So when I came back, I signed up to um, Simon Zucci's mastermind program, which I thought was tremendous for, I didn't really go to it to teach about, to learn about property because I'd been investing. Well, I actually bought my first property before Simon did. So that'll tell you quite how long I've been investing in property. Uh, but I went because, A, I wanted to learn what the changes were. And then also uh, he had this online portal, which was a great network. And I thought, OK, my so my mother had passed away in uh, 2009. And um, so I'd lost my business partner from a business perspective, obviously, you know, slightly more significant than that from a personal perspective. Um and uh, I kind of thought, well, so I need more people because the only people I'd ever talked to in property, other than my mother and my father, who was a competitive solicitor, had been the builders' merchants and the people delivering the stuff from the builders' merchants, the actual builders who were my workforce, and then the estate agents. And that was it. Like beyond that, like who else did I need? There wasn't it. So I'd never been networking before, you know, before I uh, went to Mexico. And when I came back, I kind of met Simon. Within three months, he'd asked me to launch Canary Wharf Pin, and my whole life within kind of uh, networking and the way I did real estate, the way I thought about business really, really changed because I realized how valuable people can be when you connect with them. Um, well, before we get into that, which I'm excited to do, a uh, couple of questions. One, for anyone new to the podcast, you mentioned Simon Zucci's book. What's the name of the book? Uh, the book is called Property Magic. Um and uh, it's really it's a book for beginners. So if you've you know done an awful lot in property, it's not going to be for you. But uh, if you're interested in property or you've been doing it, you know you've done a few buy to lets and that sort of thing, it's still really. Um, I'm, some of the rules won't apply now, but I think he revises it once every couple of years to make sure it's up to date and that sort of thing. And um, uh, yeah, he likes to teach people, and he always has liked to teach people. And I think um, you know obviously he's a he's a a guru as it were although he's one of the gurus who actually practices what he preaches um so he will have um you know uh, you can't be in business without pissing a few people off right um and there'll be people who went through mastermind who didn't do anything with it sure. um who failed and some people who spent too much money on it who mm. then came across afterwards and went i can't believe i spent all that money and didn't get anything um but i think a lot of people uh get a lot out of it and get a lot out of you know his pin meetings and that sort of thing I completely agree with that uh, summary, and in terms of like people starting out, virtually, I know there are some on uh, listening now. Then uh, it's one of probably the three books that I would uh, recommend you start with, is sort of the Holy Trinity or the Unholy Trinity for the atheists amongst us. Um, so that would be that one. Plus, for me, it would be Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, and then probably the Richest Man in Babylon as a, a nice aperitif. Uh, none of them, none of them it's too. It's funny. Different. I was going to say um, the Richest Man in Babylon instead of uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad. Um, so well, there, there we go. are. I, I don't disagree with you at all. Uh, and then my second question, uh, now we've got that out of the way, was around, you said you were keen, and I'm keen, to find out then 
you know, your mum was maybe averse to land deals and more risky sort of off market, not off market, but um, like uh, ground up type of deals. Uh, and then you wanted to find out, you said that at different times in the mar- in the market cycle, you found that um, one or one is, tends to be more profitable than the other. What did you learn about that? <laughs> For example, what, what, what should people do now or what can people learn from what you learned? Well, so I just think that, um, you know, it, it, so... Uh, I mean, where we get kind of, uh, I guess, once you go into the psychology of real estate, you get mm. into quite a deep subject because some real estate is actually so theoretically it's retail, right? You're you're making a product and you're selling it to a retail customer. Yeah. Mm. But um, it's actually different to just about any other product out there in terms of marketing and sales. OK. And um, there are um, so. I can't remember his name, actually, Rory, somebody, he's a great, uh, like, you know, proper um, great haired uh, marketeer. Um, uh, I would take time to look up his name, but I can't remember. Um, and anyway, he said he compares real estate to dating apps. Um, so to the kind of dating market and then also to uh, people leaving university and getting their first job. So that part of HR. Okay, and I think the reason why he compares those three is because um, what you really want to know as the customer is all the bad bits, but the only adverts that you get are all the good bits. And so actually you're buying things with completely the wrong information. And the reason why is, uh, so if we take that to real estate, um, when you go and look at the real estate market, you're searching by your price point, which you don't really do almost I mean, not even for a car do you search by a price point. Yeah, and certainly nothing else do you really search in price point as your kind of main criteria. And then you go, so I want with it up to that price, yeah, and then I want three bedrooms or more, mm. you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it just it gives you the practical bits. It doesn't tell you anything about the property. And if it looks good in photographs, that doesn't mean it's nice to live in. Yeah? And you only get one viewing of it when you're going to spend every day for the next, what, anywhere between one and 12 years living in things, sometimes 50 years, if you take my parents' example. And actually, what it's like in the advert makes no sense whatsoever in comparison to what it's like to live in. Like, there's very, very little correlation between the two. And what you actually want from the advert is, these are the things that people might not like. Yeah? Because if I don't mind, and this was Rory's example, he really likes trains. Yeah? And trains stop running after midnight, so they never keep him awake. Yeah. So he'll pay more money for a house with a train in the back garden, whereas most people will pay a lot less money for a house with a train in the back garden. Do you see what I mean? And so that's the kind of thing that really you want to advertise real estate with. Um, but real estate is also it's unusual because it's an incredibly inefficient market. OK, so whereas in like stocks and shares, for example, mm. you've got millions of people all over the world or hundreds of thousands of them who are basically valuing Tesla stock on any given day. Mm. You've only got your emotions valuing the price of the building and how much you're willing to pay for it if you're a homeowner. Yeah. So actually, in terms of the retail market, it's the most inefficient market that there is because it's really driven by the emotional response that people get. And they will bid. 10, 100, a million pounds extra, depending on the price bracket of the property, because they like it. I see. So with Tesla, the if, if, the price is, if the price is $100 for a one Tesla share, then that's the price. And then you're going to pay $100, whether you, you know, regardless of what your top price might be, that's going to be the price you're going yeah. to pay. Whereas yeah, don't with get the, me wrong, if Elon Musk has been attacked this week, then uh, the price will go bargains. down to $75 pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah but yeah. 
but that's what the whole world decides that's the price. I see. Yeah, Whereas if you get the same price. Yeah, and if you get two people interested in one Smith Street and uh, there's two, for example, women who both really love it because it's got a lovely garden, or two guys who both love it because it's got a lovely garden, suddenly that 100 grand house or whatever it might be in your area is suddenly 150 grand, 200, 250. It can go anywhere, so the price is quite volatile. Is that is that roughly what you're saying, or can be? Yeah, so that's effectively what I'm saying. I mean, to the point where I sat in, um, I used to go to auctions quite a bit in, mm. in London, and so the Stretton's auction was my favourite. And I've seen two people bidding against each other that basically got the hump with each other in the room <laughs> and overpaid by £30,000 because they had a hump on something that they should have bought for 70000 So they paid 30% extra for a product because they decided they were going to bid outbid each other. I mean, like, what the hell is going on there, right? Right. Okay. So um, so what does that tell us then about... So what does that tell us, for example, about whether right now I should be out there buying land or buying houses if if I could buy either? Well, so I think for me, it told me things like where to go. Mm. Yeah. So I always see up and coming areas because of who's there and what the kind of, you know, what the community is like. So artistic people tend to move in, make the place a bit nicer. And then the, you know, the people who can afford to start buying their places move in because they like what the artistic people done. And then Costa Coffee comes along and goes, oh, I'd put a Costa in there because we've got some people who can afford to drink it now. And so you go from the, you know, the, coffee that coffee that comes in a kind of you know an old glass to the coffee that comes in a paper cup um and then some you know and then over time it kind of it just sort of escalates and whereas um it's a very different way of looking at it let's say looking at through people's emotions to the institutions who tend to look at it and go what price is it now like what what's the infrastructure being built how can we turn it into this and blah, 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 blah. um and so i think it starts with that and then it goes to you know, just quite simply, if the if you're <clears throat> uncertain about the state in the market, and of course, no one's got a crystal ball. Mm. And that's why I kind of want to slightly avoid answering your question, sure. because you're saying, how do I predict the future? And the answer is, I don't predict the future. I just try and, you know, second guess it, but equally have an A, B strategy where I, if A doesn't work, I can always go to B, which will work in any market. Yeah. And that's really, I think what it comes down to is that we buy in um, and uh, okay, so so a great example of this is uh, so the last business I ran, which you were involved with uh, in, in a in a way, mm. um, and didn't have a, um, a happy ending with, was um, we were looking to buy a house in um, Hampstead. Well, it was a plot of land in Hampstead. Mm. Uh, as my memory is, it did actually have a kind of uh, an old school building on it, which needed tearing down, and we were going to put four houses on the plot, um, and the market was just quite uncertain yeah mm. and because of the uncertainty in the market the non-guarantee of the exit and the fact that in that particular location we couldn't turn them into buy to let because we're building three million pound houses That's and you can't turn a three million pound house into a buy to let right this just doesn't wash its face so um so our kind of you know we made the choice to and we let go of a million pounds the day that we decided to do that yeah because we'd invested a million pounds in that Mm. Um, and all our, you know, in gladly in that particular instance, all our investors got paid back from the profit of another deal, etc. Um, uh, with all their interest owed and things. But we, our decision was, we can work on this for the next two years, and we can maybe, you know, make a small profit. The chances are, at best, it's going to break even, and we mm. could lose a lot of money, or we could lose a relatively significant amount of money today and just call it quits. And mm. so being able to kind of decide to do that was something we did really because 
um, when I kind of assessed it, I sort of went, okay, we can't make it wash its face. If the downturn actually happens, um, it won't do, you know, it'll do really badly. And therefore, you want to be able to, you know, my mum's rule was, you want to be able to, you know, develop it and make a profit. But if it turns, everyone knows that when you're developing, it might take six months, it might take two years, sometimes it takes five years if you're doing a large build-to-rent scheme with 500 partners in it, yeah. you know, and, and mixed use and that sort of thing. At uh, which point, it's, there's a long time uh, for the world to suffer a COVID event or a black swan event or whatever, and you just never know what's going to happen. So you kind of want to have a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D, ideally, that you can get out of Dodge. And we learned in Prosperity, ideally, we would be selling it in advance. Of course, we didn't always manage to do it. Um, sure. as it but... Well, that was the plot. So, so to summarise all of that uh, uh, would be... And you stop me when I go wrong here. Um, first of all, black swan events sound better than they are, don't they? Black swan events aren't very nice, but they sound yeah, great. Yeah, they look lovely. <laughs> yeah, from afar. Love a black swan <laughs> on a lake. Brilliant. I haven't seen black swan in ages, but you don't want you don't want an event in uh, to turn up. Anyway, the the the, the uh, well, well, that. so I think it's the if you're hidden inside a black swan's feathers, you can't really see what's going on. And that's the problem with the Pakistan <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, that's what you can take from today. Was um, is in short, have a plan B, you know, and if, if possible, have a plan C and plan D. And if you if you if you're looking down the line, thinking, hang on a minute, my plan B seems to have wandered off, then then do something pretty quickly, you know, maybe take a, a loss if you have to, whatever. None of this constitutes financial advice, um, in order to make sure that you uh, you know you you remain safe and in the game. You mentioned to go back then to our timeline. Um, you mentioned you then became host of Canary Wharf Pin, which was one of the first pin meters I ever went to. Obviously, uh, at the chan- at the time, wouldn't have dreamed of uh, coming to speak to the host because I was just getting started then. What year What year did you start that, roughly? I think it would have been uh, 2012, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I started investing in 11, 12, so, and I'd have probably attended this meeting yeah. at about 13. So, um, so yeah, I was, I was wet behind the ears. And so, uh, but it was, it, it was a good meeting. Um, and, uh, uh, what did you learn from your new open mind with all the networking or who did you meet and what did you pick up? What was that stage of life like? So, I mean, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of good things and some, you know, some, uh, hard lessons is what I learned. Mm. Um, I was, I think I was too desperate for a, to have another business partner because mm. I've been in business with my mom and I think I felt slightly, um, um, you know, despite the fact that I was, you know, definitely one of the more experienced people on the property um, mastermind course that Simon was running, uh, I, I continuously suffer from imposter syndrome in a certain sort of way. You know, it's just mm. one of those things. Mm. Sure. Um, and I think mostly it's because I still feel like I'm somewhere between 13 and 17. I've never really grown up. And uh, it was it was having children that made people, I made me realize that people saw me as an adult. But it only happens when my children are around and they know my children. I think generally when I walk around my children, they think, why the fuck are they with, with a really old guy? They must be really sad. Because <laughs> right? I remember a few of those really old guys when we you know, had our kind of friend cruise and that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I think that kind of um, one of the things that uh, I learned was, you know, don't get into bed with people too quickly, mm. as it were. Um, and I think that that's, um, you know, I've had a couple of business partners who just really weren't the right people, you know, to be in business with, whether it was our, you know, our characters just clashed and didn't work together or whether it was that they were actually quite evil or do just did stupid things or whatever. 
Mm. Um, and sometimes you're not necessarily sure whether they're being evil or just stupid. You know, you can't really tell the difference sometimes. Um, and, and I tend to be someone who gives them the benefit of the doubt, but suffers the consequences as a result, right? You know, because I, I, I see the good in people. And mm. I like people generally, you know, I actually really, really enjoy people. Um, I think I'm the kind of person I can sit down next to the tramp on the street and chat to them about God knows what. And I've got a kind of slightly Zen philosophy that they'll tell me wise things, even though, you know, they're, they're drooling through their words because they've had too many tens of Stella uh, or tenants on the way. Um, so, but, but I think also, I mean, I learned, you know, the first day I ever hosted Canary or Pin, um, I spent a lot of time trying to work out what I was meant to say and that sort of thing, and watching Andy Haynes, who was running Blackfires at the time, mm. thinking, you're just the most perfect host in the world, because every time you say it, it's like it's pre-rehearsed so many times. And of course, he used to be a radio host, so oh. that's not surprising. He's so good at talking. Yeah. And I stand up and I go, um, uh, oh, <laughs> like this. And uh, I remember when I got up the, the first night of Canary Wars, the, the event ended, and I almost didn't realise it had yet begun. And then people started coming up to me and going, oh, that was really good, that was really good. And I was kind of like, really? And I've been this dazed the whole way through. Um, and But I learned very quickly that actually I don't really mind getting up in front of people. I don't get, you know, I, I was massively, like, you know, crapping myself before that event. Mm. And then the second and third. But by the fifth event, I was like, yeah, well, it wasn't really that scary. Um, and I've just, uh, I've just actually written, so i kind of been writing some posts in advance for uh, to put out on LinkedIn. And I just wrote one, which was, um, uh, so the quote is actually from Alex Hormozzi's wife. Uh, and her quote is that she said was, um, fear is as wide as a lake, but it's only an inch deep. Yeah, mm. And it's kind of really like, it looks like this massive thing that you can't escape. If you want to cross to the other side, you're going to have to drown or suffer drowning. But actually, just kind of get your feet wet, right? And that's not really that bad. That's yeah? a great quote. Really like there is... Um, uh, you know, it's just not, and I remember, um, you know, obviously there's the, my two favorite acronyms are, and I'm going to swear. So if you don't like it, fuck your ears, fuck everything and run. And then false expectation about reality. And I think they're lovely trying to juxtaposition of that kind of fear thing. Um, and public speaking is one of those things. It's like the thing people fear most after death or something like that, weirdly, you know, statistically. And actually when you do it kind of the first time, yeah, it's absolutely petrifying. And then you go, yeah, whatever. And now I, I, I'm, I would be more scared to talk in front of five people than 5,000 people because mm. it's really personal when it's five people, whereas actually when it's 5,000 people, they're just this sea and you can talk to them all you want. You just try and try and get eye contact with a few in the front row. You'll be fine. You know? Yeah, yeah. Billy Connolly said that, didn't um, he? He said he'd much rather perform to Wembley or, or a big stadium because when you, you say when you tell a joke in a big stadium, it can be pretty bad because only, only a few people have got to find it funny. And you send the joke out there and about half a second later, this sort of laugh rolls back at you and it like, rolls over you like a warm bath, right? Whereas if there's 10 people in a pub, yeah. it's pretty obvious if no one finds it funny because there's just a horrible silence. So yeah, the, the, yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and they don't feel as though they've got to follow the crowd either because when there's only 10 of them, there isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um, I definitely think that's true. Great man, Billy Connolly. Great yeah, man. Yeah. Stuff. Um, so anyway, sorry, just in terms of things I learned. Um, so mm. one of the things I learned that first day as well. So uh, you know that um, YPN magazine is con was connected with Simon and, and pin meetings. And it still is. Mm. Uh, I see, you know, when I ever get to a pin meeting now, I run into someone that I know from YPN because um, they asked me to do some articles for them and things. And the first meeting I ran, I spent 30, 30 seconds holding a YPN and saying, you know, it's a great magazine, blah, 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 blah. 
and that 30 seconds earned me a hundred pounds in commission. So wow. I, that was like quite a big lesson about stage time and stage presence and what it actually meant to be the person at the front of the room. Mm. And I kind of went, wow, that was a pretty short, sharp shock because, you know, a like hundred pounds for the hour it took me to speak was all right, but a hundred pounds for the 10 seconds or 30 seconds it took to say that was really good. You know? mm. um, so, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why it changed my perspective not that I like being at the front of the room, but it changed my perspective on, you know, why Simon, it taught me a lot about what Simon does and what people who run those sorts of events, you know, I went recently to a Roger Hamilton event because mm. uh, I really like Roger Hamilton and what he did with Wealth Dynamics. Um, and I use Wealth Dynamics, for example, in, uh, in when I grow my businesses, when I grow the team and that sort of thing. Um, and if you don't know about Wealth Dynamics and you're in the audience, please go and look it up. It's tremendous um, and we will be uh, selling them cheaper than you can get them anywhere else on Table Network if you want to, uh, as soon as our shops are up and running, which should take bring about the next 30 days. Um, but, uh, and, you know, kind of the way that Roger runs his room, he kind of like his, his ability to stand there and talk to 100 people. And he's not a star like Simon is. He's no. just a creative person like me. Yeah. But the way, yeah, and he's quite introverted. When you talk to him in person, you're like, wow, I never realized he was so yeah, unusual. Sure. Yeah, people, you know, yeah. like, I mean, we uh, and we have a lot in common. We watch the same podcasts. We, mm. you know, we've got a lot of kind of various things to talk about. But it's quite clear he's just feeling slightly uncomfortable the whole time you talk to him. But he's a great, you know, I mean, done some great stuff. And uh, him being on stage means that he can absolutely kind of sell 100 grand's worth of stuff in one day. You know, and that feels like it's worthwhile because at twenty percent profit on cost, that's still a good a good wage. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Roger Hamilton's a good person to follow. YPN magazine for anyone new is uh, your property network magazine is worth checking out. Um, okay, so uh, so that's what you learned from well networking and from the people you were meeting there. What, what, yeah, what a couple of things? A couple of things. I'd say more than a couple. Uh, some some excellent stuff. So ah, that was it. Before we get on to sort of what happened next or what did you do with that, you mentioned that the difficulty, maybe a difficulty for everybody, but especially for you personally, that you were struggling, you found some business partners who were toxic, bad, whatever, um, at different times um, or whatever, didn't work out. What would you say to anyone? Because I think it's quite common for people to be looking around in property and trying to find people to work with, business partners. And, and of course, when it goes well, you look, look at the likes of Rob Moore and Mark Homer, it can go really, really well. Um, so, uh, uh, but sometimes it, 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 I've, I've seen um, business relationships and stuff break down. If people are looking for business partners, how can people, in your experience, how can people um, do their best to make sure they're getting a good business partner or to, to vet people in advance or, or is it impossible? Um, so I think it's, I, I think it's not easy, you know, mm. certainly um so my um i'm gonna i'm gonna blame it on my mum again <laughs> um, because i owe her so many things that i've learned in the world sure um so i think it was her who said to me you know when when if you think that you've found yourself a girl that you want to marry go on holiday with her yeah because it puts you in unusual and extreme and stressful situations which are going to get you to the point where you you know, you treat each other like you will later on in your marriage, at which point you may as well know now, you know. And I think that's, um, so I would, uh, okay, so so um, a few times I've been on a thing called prop ski, and actually they've just come back. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't go this year because I'm not currently doing anything real estate, uh, but it's a great event. It's sort of, um, it's a bit like MIPIM, uh, and anyone who's in real estate will know what MIPIM is probably. But um, so it's a, 
three to four hundred people who are based in UK property. It's normally the kind of the industry rather than the domestic side of property. Yeah. Um, so people who work for Iceni or St. George or those kind of companies. And they go to the same resort for the same week and they all ski together and they do oh. lots of kind of, you know, charitable events while they're there and some races and some lectures and that sort of thing. Um, but so one uh, one year, it was the second year I went and I decided to get a chalet and I got it with some people that were working with me on a particular project. Mm. So there were four companies that took the chalet together in the end. We all paid our way, you mm. know, and the bonds that we made during that week meant that we could have done anything together because once you've been saving each other's lives when you fall over or stopping each other hurting yourself or looking after each other you get you gain just a lot of respect for each other mm. um and you learn who you don't want to be in business with very very quickly yeah because yeah. either either they just turn into a complete twat when they're drunk and a complete <laughs> arse on it you never want to see them again or they leave you behind when you're the one in trouble or whatever, you know, and they don't really, and you just go, well, okay, so I'm never working with them again. Yeah. yeah. And I feel as though so a lot about being in business with someone, you've got to see them a lot. So you want to be able to celebrate the good times, but also get through the bad times. And it's getting mm. through the bad times, which is a difficult bit. And you want to know they've got the right conscious, the right level of uh, ethics, which are the same as yours and that tie into yours. Because if they're far more ethical than you are, they're just going to be just as bad as if they're far less ethical you are right because they're just going kind to of really needy and wanty when you want to tell them to fuck off if they're, if they're really ethical yeah. you know and i know that uh, i mean you know I'm, I'm because of my dad i'm a very very ethical person and people who aren't ethical they just really piss me off very quickly so i've just learned to you know get to know people first and only spend time with people i really really enjoy mm. spending time with yeah mm. and those are the only people i work with um and i want them to be really good at what they do but i can never change their ethics i can never change who they are as people you can and i do that the same with employees as well i can teach them everything about the business that i want them to do but i can't change their character because their parents help them get gain that mm. and i'm never gonna you know you've got your character by the time you're seven or something yeah so if uh yeah i think in a lot of ways it is what you're talking um, about there with skiing sounds a lot like uh uh, kind of like Hell Week for the Navy SEAL sounds like a lot like Army Train, you know, or like they did for that film. Uh, was it Saving Private Ryan where they sent them all off and they all, you know, did all the bonding stuff that they do with Army Train? It sounds a lot like that. It sounds similarly. I mean, apart from there's a lot more skiing involved, of course, but it seems like you, 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 that's the whole point, isn't it? That you're going to get to know somebody, the good, the bad, and the ugly, get underneath the surface of it. The same as your, your idea about holiday, you know, pretty damn quick, which is a, an excellent tip. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's certainly what I the value that I get from it, and I mm. think you know different people get different amounts of value from it. Sure. Um, but I, I so I'm very much someone you know having never had a job in my life other than for three months. Um, I I kind of took a view very very early on in life, and it was because of something that happened to me in my childhood um, that I was always going to enjoy every single thing I did. Mm. Yeah. And so um, that's one of the reasons why I kind of like, I really want to know that I'm enjoying myself as much as possible with these people so that I can then enjoy myself with them later on as well. And that's why I organized that chalet to happen during Kotsky was specifically for that reason, because I just wanted to know that if I ring, I'm the person who they're going to answer the phone to. And they want to know that I'm going to do that. You know, I know I'll do that. I just want to be the person on the other end as well, you know, to yeah, get absolutely. the same response. And I want to know that, you know, we can have a whiskey together when it's all over. And actually, I love chatting with them because they're really interesting, mm. you know, rather than me just going, yeah, that's fine, but I'm never going to invite you to the after party, mm. you know, because <laughs> that's not what you want. Have your work business partners, is it? Yeah. 
he's great until five, and then I just <laughs> run out of the office and pick up yeah. my can. Can't stand to see him another fortnight. Um, uh, okay, cool. Well, that's uh, so that, that, that I think we've covered that bit. Uh, what happened then? I think is it or is it around the time trying to keep some vague timeline in? Is this about the time you you know you got into prosperity and started that? Am I am I in the right bit? Have I missed any bits? Uh, well, no. So I, I've um, I mean, I think I went through. I got very one significant thing I got into was uh, well I called them at the time LHA tenants but basically mm. social tenants mm. um, and I started and ran for two years a social enterprise where we housed at risk women okay. um, and it was really you know uh, I mean like you know, I'm a creative person and I also come from a father who was a who's a lawyer a solicitor so mm. I really like things that I'm in my brain I think of them as loopholes. But they're really kind of ways of putting strategies together and going, oh, that's really interesting. Um, and I happened to be at a, I think it was on Mastermind, and um, Mike Frisbee, I don't mm. know if you met him yeah, before. No, okay. but So he came and spoke for about three quarters of an hour, and he was talking about LHA and strategies. And he said something that I kind of went, oh, all right, that's interesting. Anyway, so I went and had a look, and I realized that within Zone 2 in London, I could get a 13% gross yield at the current market value of the properties that I was particularly interested in. I kind of went, oh, well, that's interesting because everyone else is getting about a 5.5% gross yield on the same property. So that sounds really good. So basically, um, I kind of started something which uh, I started investing into that. And then I started the social enterprise so that we could house at-risk people and then use a lot of profit and put it towards their social care. So that was the idea. Mm. Um, And it worked very well. And for two years we raised about seven and a half thousand pounds each month for charity which we put towards the social care so wow. it gave me a kind of good feeling to get out of bed in the morning and to keep yeah, on doing crazy. it yeah. um but at the end of the day it wasn't i'm very creative i get bored really quickly and i got bored really quickly and i kind of went so i handed it over to the charities and that was the period of time when actually i got involved with uh fraser and gavin and we started prosperity mm. um and i've been Three months before that, I'd been chatting to some other people that people might have heard of. So, um, Paul, Thierry, the mayor, and um, uh, we were talking about um, something else as well. Um, in fact, Thierry wasn't the person um, who was there then. He was the person who replaced me because I said, I haven't got time. I'm doing too much on the social enterprise. Um, so I would have been developing with Prab. Uh, but in the end, we did it with, um, I did it with Gavin and Fraser. Mm. Okay. Um, the... The social enterprise stuff sounds good. You know that uh, I can I can say honestly that unfortunately I've never never got myself into a position where I'm giving seven and a half thousand pounds a month to charity. So that's that's impressive. Uh, well, uh, you know, as I said, it gave me a good reason to. Um, I mean, you know, like when you lie in bed in the morning and you kind of go, you like you flap your eyes and go, okay, there's no coffee yet. It's a good time to get up. <laughs> um, but to have something kind of more than that that, that mm. gives you a real get up. I really like get up and go, and I kind of. You know, I mean, at the moment with, um, you know, building a new company at the moment and um, it's a very long, dark tunnel and you can't see the light at the other end. Mm. So I have a thing where when I'm in this period of time, over time, I have to do more and more things that kind of give me a reason to um, activate the kind of self-mastery mindset, you know, in myself. So it was about a month ago that I kind of went, right, I need a mantra to say to myself in the shower every morning. You know, in that way that um, Tony Robbins does. Mm. So I literally wrote, and I haven't done it for about seven years or something. You know, I haven't written myself a mantra. I kind of went, right, I need to give myself a mantra. So I gave myself a mantra. And it took about two mornings. I was like, right now, I feel really fired up. (laughs) I'm good for about three weeks. Mm. 
um you know but i just you you kind of need things to keep you going through life and i i'm lucky i'm really really lucky i find it very easy mm. to, to find these little mechanisms and i tend to um be able to apply them to myself when i need them kind of thing quite easily um but uh but yeah a, a lot of people don't and that's one of the reasons you know so i like I've, I've always given money to charity back when I used to paint pictures mm. um, and we were talking about art uh, mm. before the call started. Um, and uh, back when I used to paint, I used to give 10% of the money that I, I sold my pictures for to the Child, uh, Child Cancer Trust, I think it was called back in the day. Um, and I, I think I've just kind of, you know, just always done that because I was born with a silver spoon and frankly, I don't deserve all the money. You know, it's just, you know, and, and nowadays, I think, well, the more I can not give to Rishi Sunak, the better. <laughs> uh, you know, it's the other side of looking at it. Yeah. Um, so we've got the same with Table Network. We've, we've pledged to give 20% of all our profits to help homeless charities. Mm. Um, although uh, the plan is not to always necessarily just give it to charity, but, but create direct action. So at some point, we will be putting it towards building a portfolio because I believe in permanent housing, not temporary housing. Yeah, there's no people in taking... This kind of this idea where I liked helping um, uh, at-risk women. They were normally women who'd been beaten up or just mm. got out of jail and you know were falling on the hard times. And the idea is that you can get them out of their negative spiral and actually send them on the positive spiral, right? Um, and you can't. There's there's lots of things that you can't do that with. Some things you're just sustaining a status quo. Mm. Yeah. So if you're dealing with someone who's you know uh, got a um, a disease which is basically debilitating for the rest of their lives mm. there's there's a limit to how much corner you can turn from them mm. for them and just personally i prefer to help with the things where we can help people and they can really make a difference and come back into society having been lost and find their reason for a purpose for living again rather than be lost you know and i'm like you i'm not a religious person but i do believe in you know having a reason to get up in the morning and start making hay you know or oh, whatever yeah. do whatever you're doing yeah, and anyone who's been around for a while, and by a while I mean about five minutes, can see that everyone has bad days and good days, and that if you, we're all about one or two bad decisions away from from really rough times. And so, people who have made those bad decisions deserve a second chance, right? And so, uh, it's great if you can give it to yeah. them.